The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The thing that people also need to understand is the benefit to the businesses. A pipeline of the best talent, regardless of race or ethnicity or background, for the companies like IBM and Thomson Reuters and Tesla and others. Many companies thinking, I need the best talent. Where am I going to find it? I need to have a diverse talent base. Where am I going to find it? And here's a way to get at it in a very achievable and affordable way. So the benefit is to the private sector as well as to society. Good day to you all. All right, I am going a little bit zany lately. <laughs> Everything seems to be picking up speed more than I ever thought. And of course, that's not only with the team that I work with, which is fantastic, but it's back to the office, calls for in-person conferences and blog writing. And of course, these lovely events that I, that I truly appreciate being a part of with this podcast. But it is insane. So when our guest's name for today came across my desk, I have to admit, I didn't know quite honestly what to expect uh, from the conversation. And that was my own pure, unadulterated ignorance in my own little view. So, but here we go. So full stop, I came away from this in absolute amazement about what he has been doing with education in the US, in the UK, and frankly, around the world. Um, including now legal education. So I am very, very humbled that he joined me for this conversation. I really appreciated it. So you will hear about the fascinating path that led our guest to his passion surrounding building a new way of educating people. So we're talking about reinventing the way that people are educated from diverse backgrounds and those in underserved communities. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And for reference, it's called P-TECH. So you'll hear that mentioned multiple times um, from our guest. I do, I do lob out a few edgy questions. Uh, bring on STEM for everyone is what I always say. Um, as this space is clearly a personal passion of mine having taught in a remote area of Mexico, as you may have heard me talk about before many moons ago, and I also have a very definite opinion uh, sadly, on education these days, specifically on technology, which bleeds into legal education, where I feel like I spend a lot of my time these days, as does my team. Um, so today, today we are really, really fortunate to have with us Stan Litau. He's an author, a speaker, uh, education advocate. He's professor and innovator at in residence at Duke University. Farewell, Coach K, adjunct professor at Columbia University, with whom I have a connection with their startup incubator. And lastly, lastly, I wish I could name them all, but I can't. Uh, he has received numerous awards and accolades for his singular leadership, honestly, in addressing critical challenges facing society today. This is truly inspirational, or at least it was for me, and I honestly feel you'll find the same. So let's get started. The Hearing. Stan, welcome to The Hearing. It's honestly, it's great to have you. As I was starting to do a little more research about what's going on in the world, your name popped up, and I want to throw out a few things and see what we have in common. <laughs> and the first one is Harvard Business Review. 
The Economist, The New York Times, Forbes, U.S. News, Council on Foreign Relations, and of course, lastly, one of my favorites, Wired Magazine. These are all publications that you've been either quoted in or have substantial um, sway with, which is great to see. That's, that's amazing stuff. How did it feel to be a part of the Council on Foreign Relations? Well, it feels great because, uh, you know, what I've been interested in for my entire professional career is uh, making a difference and, and trying to do things that make an impact on society. And in the work that we do, uh, whether it's in the public sector, the private sector, the not-for-profit sector, in higher education, uh, that work is maximized and has the greatest impact if the largest number of people know about it. So I, I really like the opportunity to uh, write opinion pieces and commentary and uh, do the kinds of things that will attract interest from major media and social media. So it feels great to be able to get <laughs> that uh, the word out and then to get the result of getting the word out, which is convincing people that they need to do things that stand behind turning the word into reality. No, absolutely, no question. And just to level set for people, because maybe some people aren't as familiar with the Council on Foreign Relations, but it is sort of the quintessential think tank that's in DC, but of course also in New York. And it was founded, if I remember correctly, it was founded by David Rockefeller and Herbert Hoover yes. way back when, and I, maybe even a hundred years ago at this stage. But um, they have, and I've been fortunate enough to be a part of the bi-weekly seminars that they have, which, and this sort of brings it all around. Um, they used to have them, of course, in person. And I think they're hopefully going to go back to in-person either end of this year or beginning of next year in D.C. and in New York City um, with people that either run government agencies around the world. I mean, the, we're talking about top, top people. Uh, we're talking about the people that run the, biz the biggest businesses, um, things that even touch on cybersecurity and global commerce, and then trying to solve for inequality around the world, as well as, of course, where you kind of come into this, I'm, I believe, around education. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, so it's it's an amazing thing to be a part of. Um, all right, so I am very curious to hear more about your background and what led you in this direction towards P-TECH, which we'll talk about in a little bit. We'll define it, we'll get into that whole thing, but uh, where did you start with all of this way back when? Well, I began my career working, you know, while I was still in college, working for the mayor of New York City. Uh, and I got a real opportunity to see from the standpoint of a very large city, what are the critical and most important issues that affect all levels of uh, service delivery within, within a city and within government. And obviously the work that I did was directly connected to education. At that point, I ran the largest public service internship program in the United States, which spread across the country called the Urban Corps. I did that for a few years, and then when the mayor went out of office, I was thinking about the best way to have an impact, and I decided that I would form my own think tank. I set up a new not-for-profit organization called Interface, and another one called the Educational Priorities Panel, and had an opportunity to do policy work in areas like education, but also connect with advocacy organizations and community-based organizations to advocate and 
try to make sure that the work that was done through academic scholarship resulted in actual return that made a difference for people in their daily lives. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, about 10 years into that, uh, I was asked to become the deputy chancellor of schools for the city of New York, the largest uh, school system in the United States. And I had an opportunity to create some new models for new schools across New York City that spread to other cities ar around the United States. And then after doing that, I was recruited by the CEO of the IBM company, Lou Gerstner, uh, to run IBM's foundation, to be in charge of corporate affairs and corporate citizenship for the company, and had an opportunity to take the best assets of the company, its technology, its people, and use it to bring about social change in communities around the world, creating a new way to uh, teach young people how to read using voice recognition technology, using grid technology uh, to create a virtual supercomputer that could advance healthcare research, and a lot of ways to mobilize the skill and talent of the workforce at IBM by creating uh, the uh, uh, private sector version of a Peace Corps, sending our best talent around the world to solve the most critical problems. And then at the end of about a 25-year career at IBM, uh, I re recall my biggest accomplishment was creating a new model for education called PTEC. And, and as most people know, high school is one structure, college is another, uh, and sadly, far too few young people who complete their high school uh, have an opportunity to go to college and complete college. And I came up with the idea of having a grade 9 through 14 school, which would have an integrated pathway for students from school to college to career. It was embraced by uh, political leaders around the United States and around the world. President Obama featured it in his State of the Union address and, and said it was something that should be provided for all students. And it grew with more schools, and over the last 10 years, it has gone from one school in uh, a small neighborhood in New York City to 266 schools across 28 countries, serving about 150,000 uh, uh, students. And now the book that I've written, Breaking Barriers, tells the story of this innovation and hopefully will lead to further expansion. That is amazing. Holy smokes. From the from the very beginning all the way through to what you're doing now, um, it's it's almost like it, it throws me off a little bit. <laughs> so I'm trying to, to wrap my head around it. There's so many things happening there and I have tons of questions for you. Um, Let's dive into, into P-TECH in just a bit, but I'm kind of curious about the, the essence of the idea of that sort of blending between high school and, and college, um, or whatever you want to call that, because um, everywhere around the world we call it slightly something slightly different. Mm -hmm. But um, the essence of that, are we talking about someone that's learning skills, but they're also being integrated into sort of the work life, so that maybe they have an internship of sorts. Does that make sense? Yes, that's exactly right. I think what we're learning is that the new jobs that are being created that require uh, education and skills are jobs that also meld an academic preparation with workplace skills. Problem solving, writing skills, uh, presentation skills, all of these things are sadly not necessarily stressed in a traditional education setting. 
So this model took the workplace skills that were valued in the most competitive opportunities for young people and embedded them in how the curriculum is taught so that a student didn't just learn math skills or science skills or, or language skills, but they learned them in the context of how you solve a problem and how you work effectively and did that in an integrated way. And we also know that many young people don't, are not given an opportunity to understand what career could be like. So all the students get mentors, all the students get paid internships. They get deep connections, not just with school to college, but school to college to career, where they have an opportunity to uh, learn from people who are in the workforce. It's, it's really like an apprenticeship 2.0. In the current environment, the real opportunities in the most competitive areas are going to require real workplace skills, plus the credential, plus the degree. And this offers it to all students. And, and one thing that's really important is it really offers it to all students regardless of their race or income level. It's a total open enrollment program. So it doesn't handpick the best students and provide them with a career opportunity. It provides it to all students, regardless of their academic preparation. And what it does in the reality, and, and 10 years later, it's college success and college completion rates are 400% higher than the national average in the United States. Fantastic. Jeez. Uh, so, one of the things that I had probably one too many debates at late night, perhaps at a pub or a bar with my friends, is the debate that we have around STEM versus what I grew up with, which was like the humanities, the language arts, the dance, the drama, the music, all of that sort of thing. And I go back and forth, depending on the, the day, the night, whatever the case is, about the importance. I clearly am more in the STEM world these days because my whole forte is around technology and, and moving in that direction. But does the humanities, does the language arts, does that still have a place in today's world or, or not so much? I think it still has a place in today's world. And I don't think it's about either or. I think it's a way of combining those things in an effective way. You know, I recall taking the president of Johns Hopkins University into a math class at one of the first P-TECH schools. And the students were learning their algebra skills in the context of creating a business plan. Uh, so they had to learn how to write it. They learned, had to learn how to present it. They need to learn how, what was the most effective way to make presentations. And they did it and they used their math skills, but they used it in the context of language skills, writing skills, etc. And I remember going out into the hallway afterwards with the president of the university, and he said, I've never seen a math class like that. That, <laughs> that, that was amazing. And, and, you know, Johns Hopkins is a first-class university, and this was a small little high school in a very uh, difficult uh, part of, of, of Brooklyn in a black uh, community. And, and students were getting that skill. I also recall taking the lieutenant governor of New York to one of the uh, schools in a, in a, in a very 
uh, difficult community that had the highest crime and drug rates in the entire state of New York. And uh, we had a group, after visiting classrooms, had an opportunity to talk to the, some of the uh, ninth grade students and this 13-year-old girl. And the lieutenant governor said, tell me one thing you learned how to do. And the girl said, I learned how to do a, uh, an elevator pitch. And the lieutenant governor said, what's an elevator pitch? <laughs> and the girl said, well, you have to research an issue, but then you have to learn how to convince someone in three to five minutes to, to go along with your point of view. Uh, and uh, that's what I've learned how to do. And it's helped me figure out exactly how to translate my learning in any class into an opportunity to persuade people. And this was a 13-year-old uh, from a very distressed community. So I think the courses and the classes are important in every academic area, but they're also important to stress the skills to be able to take that knowledge and convert it into the ability to convince others, solve a problem, etc. And those are really you know, some people call them um, uh, soft skills. Uh, I, I like to call them essential skills because <laughs> there's nothing soft about that. No question. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think you may have solved my, uh, <laughs> my debates, <laughs> my late night debates with people. Um, but it's always been a difficult one for me. So I'm kind of curious because to me, maybe it relates in some small way to what you're doing with P-TECH. But what are your thoughts on things like Khan Academy or Corsica? I believe, or sorry, is it Corsica Corsa, or Corsera. something like that? Is it? Corsera. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, um, I, think, I think we have a great opportunity to use our technology in innovative ways to bring them into the classroom. And, and I think that, uh, that all of those efforts uh, on the cutting edge, the ones that you talked about, are critically important. Uh, but they also need to be available, not just for some students, but for all students. And I think one of the things that I like about the P-TECH model is that it's not, it's not, there's no admission screen to get in. Uh, so any student has this opportunity, regardless of their preparation. Uh, so for example, there was one, one young uh, man I wrote about in, in the book Breaking Barriers, Oscar Tendilla. Oscar was an immigrant kid and in the eighth grade he was about three years behind in reading and math. And he wouldn't have been selected for some of the best opportunities that you talked about. But Oscar got into P-TECH because it was open enrollment and he completely took off and completed the six-year program in three and a half years, got a full scholarship to Cornell and three weeks ago graduated with his bachelor's degree and and what Oscar wants to do with his life is he wants to be an education reformer uh, and absent that opportunity uh, uh, some of the best opportunities wouldn't have been available to him because he didn't test in or he didn't have the right preparation but P-TECH really got beyond that by saying that every student can achieve if given the right opportunity and uh, given the right supports. And the supports don't only include a technology class or course or the best access to the materials, but a mentor, structured workplace visits, the kinds of support systems that really work. And they don't cost a nickel more than the per capita spending on any other education program. 
So as it's expanded across the United States, 12 states, and, and expanded uh, across the world into uh, 27 other countries, we've seen that this is a way of leveling the playing field and providing this opportunity for all students. And the link to career is particularly important because you know, education is an opportunity to prepare someone with the right skills, but then they, when they complete their college, they have an opportunity, an entree into the workforce. Uh, Thomson Reuters is one of the partners with the P-TECH schools in Texas, and they had 28 students doing internships virtually this last uh, semester, and they wound up hiring 23 of the 28 students who got hmm. their high school degree and their college degree uh, in the same month, and now had a pathway with that success into career. I did not know that. That's fantastic. So when we start thinking about some of the other professions outside of maybe the technology, um, what about the legal world? What does that look like from your vantage point with this uh, P-TECH system set up? Well, there, there are P-TECH students who complete the uh, grade 9 through 14 program with an associate's degree in computer science or electromechanical engineering. And uh, uh, interestingly, then many of them go on and get their bachelor's degrees in totally different fields, and some of them going on to law school. Uh, and, and, and they're a population of low income, uh, large numbers of, of, of young people of color, uh, and they're going to law school or going to medical school, or uh, they're seeking careers in, in a variety of other areas. There's a thought that some people have that if you uh, prepare somebody with one academic background, like computer science or, or uh, electromechanical engineering or something like that, that that means that that's going to be it for them in their life. But reality is that it's a credential on the way to anything else. It's putting the student in the driver's seat. With an associate's degree uh, uh, through this grade 9 through 14 program, and there's no charge for the tuition because they're taking their college courses while they're on the high school register. So it's a dual enrollment model. Uh, and then they walk away with a two-year free degree, and they can do almost anything. So they can choose to go into the workforce, and many of them will go working for an IT company like IBM, which helped create the program, but in marketing or in communications or in advertising or in design or in a whole range of other fields. So all of the assumptions that people have about this is pushing a young person into one career turns out by the data and what has happened turns out to be uh, just the opposite. And, and uh, in, in the book, I use the opportunity to tell this story through the lens of the personal stories of the individual students. So one young woman, for example, uh, Shudan Brown, who got her two-year degree in computer science, went on to get her bachelor's, went on to get her master's, and is now pursuing a PhD. So incredibly encouraging. It's it's really is. It's stunning. Um, so for a second, I want to <laughs> go back to my humanities background and talk a little bit <laughs> about maybe some history here. Um, when I think about even going back uh, multiple, multiple centuries to 1450-ish with Guten, Gutenberg uh, coming up with the first printing press, um, that's when you started to see Europe take fire in terms of education because you were able to produce these books. People were then able to learn to read and go forward with that sort of thing. 
I almost feel like, and I this is I want to get to a question about your opinion on this this phase of this. I almost feel like we're at the same stage right now where technology is becoming fairly ubiquitous around the world. Not just we're not just talking about the United States. I'm not just talking about. Uh, clearly, underprivileged areas in cities, in rural areas are very, very important. But I'm talking about a global change that we're about to see people implementing and using technology to help people move the ball forward such that they can get better education and then move up upstream, so to speak. So part of this is I was part of an organization uh, called MIT Solve. And they're also sort of semi-global when they have an approach to solving problems around the world. One of one of them is, is education. And so I worked with a group uh, in Dubai, so the UAE, not long ago that was trying to help people, I believe in Africa as well as South America, with getting them books. And you're like, okay, well, they're not getting them physical books, but what they're doing is they're using tablets that you can now buy tablets for like a dollar, two dollars, three dollars that are Android based. So they're very simplistic and, and easy to use, um, but they're cheap. And so what they're doing is they're able to get these tablets to people in remote areas. They're leveraging solar. They're going to little hubs that they can go into their towns. Maybe they're rural. Uh, maybe they're more acidified. Uh, they go to these hubs. They're able to download this information. And then they can go back to their, their homes and have 10,000 books on their computer or workflows, um, classes available on those computers to help them get to the next stage. My question, do you think, sorry, what long-winded there, do you think that we're at that phase or am I overblowing that? Well, I think that those are th tools that are really helpful to uh, pushing a more comprehensive and long-term education strategy. There was an effort, and I believe MIT was very involved in this too, to provide a laptop for every child. Uh, and uh, they sought contributions to be able to do that. And the reality is, uh, uh, several years into it, doing the evaluation, it determined that it didn't really move it very much in terms of long-term educational gains and achievement opportunities, because having a laptop, which was an important tool, wasn't the total solution. So teachers weren't trained to support it, parents weren't trained to support it, and students weren't trained to continue it. So a lot of them worked on a lot of information on a laptop that wasn't all that connected directly uh, to education. So I think technology is a vital and important tool, but a comprehensive education solution starts with the fact that we've got a crisis. And the crisis is that the jobs that are being created require a higher level of education, a higher level of skill, and we need a comprehensive solution available to all. And in every one of the countries that has indicated interest and has started and launched these P-TECH schools, whether they're in Africa or Asia or Latin America or, or Europe, uh, there are populations that have been left out they're low-income populations. If you look at the, the rates of people coming into the competitive workforce who are low-income and people of color, it's very, very low. And it's because they don't have the support and the skill. And some of the short-term technology solutions, while vital if they were integrated into a larger solution, are not enough in and of themselves. And that's why I think that the kind of comprehensive solution that I've been talking about 
is so incredibly important when you look at the data and you look at the results. Right now in the United States, when a person of color starts a two-year uh, community college program, the percentage that complete that two-year program on time is about 9%. That means only one of 10 students are prepared enough to complete that program on time. The PTEC students completed on time about 7 out of 10 students. They weren't different, but they were given all of the support, a different kind of education, melding academic with workplace skills, the support of a mentor, paid internships, so that they could understand the relevance. If I learn these skills, this is where I could go. This is what I could do. And then when you look at the results of not just some students, in, in the uh, city of Dallas, Texas, where I said Thomson Reuters has been involved as a collaborator and partner with this uh, program, they have 18 of these PTEC school, schools with 9,000 students enrolled. Uh, this month, 1,000 of them graduated, not just with a high school diploma, but with a high school diploma and a college degree. That's really incredible data. And it says, look at the numbers, look at the data, look at the facts. And some of the short-term solutions, while they are important and are attractive and should continue to be supported, but that shouldn't be enough. We should want to be able to create economic opportunity for all. And then we should be able to say, this is something that's not just going to be good for some students. It's going to grow the economy. And especially in a pandemic where we're getting out of it and finding out how we can go back to a normal life, this kind of a program is going to produce graduates that can fuel economic opportunity and growth for all. When we look in the United States right now, if, a, if somebody goes into the workforce with only a high school diploma compared to those who go in with a post-secondary degree, over the li their lifetime, the earnings is 84% more with a post-secondary degree. Think about the tax revenue of that uh, for the entire economy. So this is something that we need to do. In, in a country like the United States, it wasn't until the end of the Second World War that high school was made mandatory. Uh, before that, uh, it was an eighth grade education that was mandatory, and people went into the workforce with limited education skills, but were able to have a middle-class job and a middle-class life. And, and those days are ending. And now this opportunity about higher level of skill and a real pathway from school to college to career is something that needs to be thought of as our solution now, like making high school mandatory back then. We can innovate, we can create, and we can provide new opportunity that's going to be a benefit for all. Again, so many questions. It sounds like P-Tech clearly is working well. How do we how do we scale this? I mean, it seems like uh, it's it's clearly a perfect model, or it seems like nearly a perfect model. Um, what do we do to, to scale that? Well, I think the change strategy outlined in the book is both top-down and bottom-up. The top-down is get the influencers in business, government, 
and broader society behind it. And how do you do that? Uh, you know, when President Obama featured it in his State of the Union, uh, it made a big difference. When he visited the school, it made a big difference. When the Prime Minister of Australia came to the United States to meet with the President and then decided he would visit a P-TECH school and spread it across Australia, that made a difference. Does media attention make a difference? What effect did it have when it was on the cover of Time magazine in the United States? It had a big effect. Uh, so it's top down. Uh, uh, did it help to have the CEO of the IBM company uh, when uh, brought to the White House when Angela Merkel came to Washington, bringing P-TECH students with her uh, into the Oval Office to say this is something that every a political leader around the world should know about. All of those top-down efforts by heads of state, CEOs of major companies, heads of universities, speaking out about it, getting it into the media in a very strong, consistent way will help lead to its expansion. But don't leave out bottom-up. And education reforms can't be implemented without the clear support of stakeholders. So uh, the teachers' union supports PTEC. The principals' union supports it. Civil rights organizations support it. Parent organizations support it. Student leadership organizations support it. In the United States recently, the uh, federal legislation was changed involving all career and technical education. And what was the model for it? PTEC, with 400 organizations signing on to it. So a reform effort can't just happen organically. You know, in business, some often we think if you have a really innovative and creative design of a restaurant or any other kind of business activity, organically other businesses will learn from it, compete and learn to do it, and it will just organically grow. That doesn't happen in education. When you have a great school and somebody say, well, why isn't it growing from one school to thousands of schools? Because people will say, well, that school was uh, you know, two stories, and my school is three stories. Uh, that school is on 34th Street. My school is on 43rd Street. But uh, having a conscious replication plan and strategy, and that's what P-TECH was all about, to spread it around the world, to grow it, to get more companies involved. Now hundreds of companies, not just Thomson Reuters or IBM, but but Global Foundries and Corning and Tesla and uh, you, you name it, many different companies and in all fields getting engaged and involved. So a conscious strategy to replicate and grow is something that is both top down and bottom up. What does success look like for that kid in Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuy uh, in New York, um, underserved area, but what does it look like from him or her? Um, I mean, is it, is it getting a job eventually? So eventually getting a job, making X dollars, or is it knowing that they've had this background, uh, that they're then better ready for what's next? What does it look like for them? Well, I think it's putting the student in the driver's seat and, and yes, getting the, getting the education credential, getting the right degree, moving on to career opportunity, and then helping others to bring them along. So when we look at the P-TECH uh, students who complete and go successfully into the workforce and earning 
high wages and having this kind of career opportunity. They're also participating in an alumni network to get the next generation uh, to uh, get the same kind of an opportunity that, that they did. So I think what they're learning is not just what is in it for them, but because it was in it for them and given to them by a lot of other people who believed in them and supported them, they need to do the same and they need to provide that same kind of support and opportunity for others. And that's where you see the P-TECH students completing and serving in this alumni network and helping others get the same opportunity that they got. But uh, I, I don't think we, we can make one set of rule for, for, for all of these students who have been given this opportunity. We're looking at students who were immigrant students, students who had, had no real opportunity for success and given it, they then think differently about what they can do for others. There was a story in the local uh, newspaper in uh, Longmont, Colorado, uh, about the one student in the P-TECH school, he had come to Longmont at age nine, not speaking any English. Jose was nine years old, uh, in a difficult circumstance, not doing that well. Well, uh, just this month, Jose graduated with his two-year degree and now has a full scholarship to Harvard. Now, nobody expected that. He didn't expect it. And if other people were looking at nine-year-olds who don't speak the language and said, well, let, let's think about other things because they're not going to succeed educationally. Well, read about Jose. Read about Jose's story. That's going to blow apart. There was no barrier to Jose's achievement that we couldn't meet, and he, and he got it. And now new schools, new P-TECH schools are opening in Longmont, Colorado, and and the superintendent, Don Haddad, wants the same opportunity that Jose had for, for, for all students. Stan, this has been amazing, um, truly uplifting. It's, it's such a sharp approach to education and helping people in underserved areas, clearly around the world, in our cities in the United States, but beyond. And it just, you, you think, I mean, I'm not going to try to simplify it, but it sounds so logical. It just makes so much sense. I would love to see more and more groups leveraging this and taking advantage of it all around the world. Um, well, thank you so much for joining today. We really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And I, I also think there's one last thing, if I could, the thing that sure. people also need to understand is the benefit to the businesses, a pipeline of the best talent regardless of race or ethnicity or background, a pipeline of the best talent for the companies like IBM and Thomson Reuters and Tesla and others. Just think about that too. Many companies thinking, I need the best talent. Where am I going to find it? I need to have a diverse talent base. Where am I going to find it? And here's a way to get at it in a very achievable and affordable way. So the benefit is to the private sector as well as to society. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> That's perfect. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Joe. I really appreciate it. The Hearing. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it today. Please join me for our exciting upcoming episodes where amazing people and their remarkable stories meet the cross-section of the law and technology. If you would like, please give us a rating. 
feel free to review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Also, if you would like to connect with me on Twitter, it's at Joe Raz. That's J-O-E-R-A-Z-Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.